Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. And up first to take a look at the latest scientific breakthroughs is Diana O'Carroll. Yes, well, researchers from Ontario this week have identified which parts of the brain are involved in human echolocation. Traditionally associated with bats, whales and sonar, echolocation is a technique used to find one's position by bouncing sound off surfaces and waiting for the echo. The study performed by Law Thaler and colleagues at the University of Ontario and the Rotman Research Institute compared the brain activity between two study subjects. One had been blind since 13 months and the other had developed blindness in adolescence. Both these individuals used clicking sounds made with their own mouths to glean information about their surroundings, and both blind subjects were able to tell when a panel placed before them was flat or concave and whether it was 20 degrees to the right or left. Outdoors, they could tell if they were standing in front of a car or a tree or a lamppost, but the researchers had to overcome the problem of echolocating inside the brain-scanning fMRI machine, where it's noisy and there's nowhere to go. So what they did was to pre-record echolocating sounds from microphones at the subject's ears, and then they played the recording back to them inside the machine. Publishing in PLOS One, they found that in both blind subjects, the calcarine cortex, an area of the brain normally dedicated to processing visual information in sighted people, displayed greater activity when the subjects listened to the echo sounds. Now, this implies that they could see something from the sound of the echoes, and this was compared to fairly constant levels of activity in the part of the brain typically used for processing auditory information, and that's when they listened to the echoless clicks. So it does look like they're seeing with sound rather than hearing. And it does gel with what we've known before about the fact that people who are blind seem to use the vacant brain processing areas that would normally subserve vision and they do other tasks of processing sounds and other things maybe even texture with those brain areas and so that kind of fits with that too. Yeah I mean it's incredible how their brains have rewired in this way but I think it's important to point out that not all blind people can echolocate and these are two very special individuals. So these people were doing this consciously they were making sounds but is it not possible therefore that people who are blind are just subconsciously making use of echoes just coming back incidentally from the environment and they're building a a visual picture using sound like this in their minds without even realising it. Yeah, of course, I think that's perfectly possible. Well, also this week, and moving into physics now, uh, scientists have come up with an attractive new magnetic material. Uh, This is actually the work of uh, Tomotero Fukumura, who's a researcher at Tokyo University. And what they've been able to do is to produce a substance which, when you apply a very small voltage to it, becomes a permanent magnet, temporarily. Now, the reason for putting it like that is that for many years, scientists have known that it's possible to take a material and make it so that you can apply voltage to it and therefore make it behave in a magnetic way. Um, But the problem is the materials they'd succeeded in making were all only active at very low temperatures, close to absolute zero. The amazing thing about this new chemical is that it has this interesting behaviour at a very high temperature, room temperature, Now, what the scientists did, they were using titanium dioxide, which is the same stuff you use to make paper go white. You make paints with titanium dioxide. So it's an interesting material in itself. But they added to it about 10% cobalt ions. And what happens is that in the crystal lattice that the titanium dioxide would normally form, about one in every 10 of the atoms are substituted by cobalt. Now, cobalt is a ferromagnetic material. 
So what this does is to turn the titanium dioxide into what's called a paramagnetic material. In other words, if you put it in a magnetic field, it will feel a force and try and move. But then if you apply an electric charge, then it behaves like a permanent magnet. And what the researchers have found is happening is that when you push the electrons into the substance, they make the spin on the electrons of all of the cobalt atoms line up in register, and the free electrons tunnel between each of the cobalt atoms, telling them what spin orientation to be in so that they all line up like this and they stay that way until you take the current off and so this is an amazing way of making a permanent magnetic type material and you can make it switch on and off and the possible applications of that are you could make a miniature transistor because you have a way of allowing current either through or not through in that way but even more exciting uh, when you reflect light off of a magnetic surface, then you can actually rotate the plane of the polarisation of that light. So what you could do is if you had a, a polarising filter in front of some of this material, you then put some polarised light into it. By turning the magnetic field on and off, you could very quickly and very rapidly alter the amplitude of the light that was coming back off. And you could use that to, for instance, very rapidly put pulses of information down fibre optics and dramatically increase the data rate that uh, you were downloading the Naked Scientist podcast with. <laughs> um, but this all sounds quite nanoscale. How big can they make this? Well, uh, the thing is that you can just make a crystal of the material. You take uh, the titanium dioxide, you put in the cobalt, and so you can make sheets of this very, very easily. That's published this week, by the way, in the Journal Science. <laughs> right, well, speaking of electrons, <laughs> one is round and measures one billionth of a millimetre across. Yes, you guessed it, I gave it away. It's the electron. Now, uh, theories have predicted that these particles should be spheres, but proving this has been tricky. Now, after 10 years of trying, a team at Imperial College London have succeeded, as Johnny Hudson explained to Chris. So what we've been working on is we've been trying to measure the shape of the electron. The conventional theories suggest that the electron is round, like a point particle, but we've been wanting to check that and to see whether it really is round. Should that really make a difference? Yeah, it's, it's important, actually, and the reason it's important is because although our sort of current theories predict that the electron should be round, some of the advanced theories that go beyond that predict that it won't be round, that it'll have a distortion. And so by doing this measurement, we, we look at it as a way to search for physics beyond the physics that we know about at the moment. And just to give people some grasp as to the scale of the problem that you're grappling with, mm -hmm. how big is an electron? The size of the electron, it depends how you measure it. The, the classical, what they call the, the Compton wavelength, is one measure of the size of the electron, and that's 10 to the minus 12 metres, so a billionth of a millimetre. Pretty small, in other yeah. words. How on earth do you go about trying to size up something like that? If the electron were perfectly round, when we put it in an electric field, it would just spin around its axis in a perfectly regular kind of way. Whereas if it's not round, when we put the electron in the electric field, it'll develop a kind of wobble, a very distinctive kind of motion where it's kind of wobbling around its axis. A lot like a little, um, if you were to put a gyroscope on a, on a stand at an angle, that kind of wobbling motion. And so we look for that wobbling motion. Is that because the electron itself is an electrically charged particle? So if you have something which is electrically charged moving and it's moving in an electric field, therefore the two fields are going to interact and that's going to impart a, a movement on the particle that you can then pick up? Yeah, that, that's basically it. 
if the electron were round, then it wouldn't matter which way it was oriented with respect to the field because it would just look the same. If you turn a perfect sphere around a bit, it still it looks the same. Whereas if the electron, say, if it were egg-shaped, if it had a bit of distortion to it, it matters which direction it's pointing in relative to the field and so that the, there's a force on it trying to align it with the field and it's that force which creates the wobbling motion. So how did you actually do it? Yeah, so what we do, we, we don't just use a bare electron because there are some real technical difficulties with working with electrons, namely that they're electrically charged. So what we did instead is we used the electrons in a particular molecule, a molecule called a terbium fluoride. And this molecule has an unpaired electron orbiting around the outside of it. And that's the electron that we studied. And what we look at is if the electron isn't round, it starts wobbling in its orbit around the molecule. So actually what we really look at is we look to see how the molecule spins. And what do you find? What we find is, as best we can tell, and we've looked really very carefully, there's no wobble. The, the electron shows all signs of being round at our current sensitivity. So that means, well, that must have quite big implications for other things in the quantum realm then. Yeah, like I say, our current theory of physics predicts that the electron should be really almost exactly round. And so the first thing to say is our work doesn't contradict our current theory of physics, which was, I guess, a disappointment for us. It'd be much more fun if it did contradict the theory, but you can't have everything. What it does do is, if you look at some of these theories, you know, I said people propose these theories that go beyond our current theory of physics. Some of them predict that the electron should be really quite distorted. And actually, we've shown that it's rounder than some of those theories would predict. So what it's allowed us to do is it's allowed us to constrain and guide the development of theories that go beyond our current theory of physics. It places limits on what, what theories could possibly be right. And do you think all electrons are made equal? And What I mean by that is, in the context in which you studied the electron, it behaved like that. But what would happen if you took a different molecule as the donor and studied that? Do you think you might be able to get an electron that was distorted? Oh, no, no. No, the, there are no forces in the molecule that can distort the shape of the electron. Th this, is, this is what we're measuring here is how the electron comes from Mother Nature. It, it's not the molecule itself is not placing any forces on the electron that are distorting it. So you've nailed that one, myth busted. Um, but are there any actual physical applications now you are armed with this knowledge that you can use to take this forward? Well, one thing that physicists are very interested in is... Um, there's a big mystery in, in cosmology, a big mystery in describing the origin of the universe, and the mystery is what they call the matter-antimatter imbalance. So our current theory of physics, the best one we have, says that in the Big Bang, matter and antimatter were created in equal, equal measure. And further, our theories of physics say that the laws that govern antimatter are basically the same as the laws that govern matter. And so the logical conclusion would be that we should have an equal amount of antimatter and matter today. But astronomers have looked, and you can search the skies, you can look wherever you like, you find only incredibly tiny traces of antimatter. And this is a big mystery for people. And now one potential solution is that there's a slight difference in the behavior of matter and antimatter. And this would mean over the billions of years that the universe has existed, it could tip the balance and the matter could start to dominate over the antimatter. If the electron's not round, then you can show that it's not possible for it to behave the same as its antiparticle, the positron. So if the electron's not round, this would indicate that there has to be a difference between the behavior of matter and the behavior of antimatter. And so that's one of the motivations for studying this. People are looking for a difference between the behavior of matter and antimatter. They think there must be one that we haven't discovered yet.
So could you take your technique and apply it to the anti-hydrogen that has been successfully made at CERN and ask that very question? That would be a fantastically interesting experiment, but I would say our experiment was so difficult that it took us over a decade of extremely hard work to do. Their experiment is so difficult that it took them over a decade if you sort of multiply them together. I, I just I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that would be. Johnny Hudson from Imperial College. And amazingly, Diana, the precision with which they say they've made those measurements is equivalent to were you to scale the electron up to an object the size of our solar system, their measurements are precise to within the thickness of a human hair. Amazing piece of work. It's published this week in the journal Nature. Okay, that's sort of blown my mind a little bit. Right, also this week, researchers from Norway have reported that people who take part in or attend cultural activities tend to have better physical and mental health. Must explain everything about me. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, cultural activities are defined as creative, so they can be uh, playing music or drawing, and they're also defined as receptive, so that can include going to the theatre, a museum, and watching sports, interestingly. Um, Maybe it depends on the sport. But publishing in the journal Epidemiology and Community Health, Conrad Kuypers and his team sent surveys to tens of thousands of people in a rural region of Norway, asking questions about their activities, their happiness, and their perceived health. The researchers then took the results, ran some statistical tests and found this association between cultural activities and health. Now, Kuipers, who's from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, found that it was especially men in whom this relationship was most apparent. More than females, males reported higher levels of satisfaction, happiness and better perceived health if they took part in the receptive activities, such as watching sports or going to a museum. Now, they also found that people in lower socioeconomic groups were less likely to attend either type of cultural activity and that women were especially happy if they took part in more creative forms of culture. In addition, people tended to take part in more cultural activities the older they became up to their 40s when it started to decline again. And the researchers stressed that they can't identify a causative relationship and they don't know if a bit of culture makes you happier or if happier and healthier people tend to involve more culture in their lives. I was just going to say, because the kind of people you're describing, higher social class demographic, they're likely to have more disposable income to spend on availing themselves of these cultural pursuits, and therefore they might be happier because they're less stressed about how they're going to pay their mortgage, rather than the fact that doing those things makes them happier. Or did they control for that? Um, I don't think they controlled for that, as far as I know. Um, But that's a a thought that occurred to me as well, because they do see this rise up up until the 40s of people participating in cultural activities. And so if you've got more money, you're more likely to be able to do that. And obviously, you're more likely to get more money as you get older. So it does kind of fit in with that. Another epidemiological study I saw recently looking at men's happiness across their lifespan showed that actually um, you're happiest at the extremes of your age span. So young men and older men tend to be at their happiest so the grumpy old men uh, idea is perhaps wrong but in the middle years actually it's like a sort of smiley face ironically and, and the, the down in the mouth the lowest point where you're unhappiest is actually coinciding with your 40s because that's when the time when people tend to have the biggest financial burden and uh, the most stress in their life and kids and therefore probably the least sleep so that's the uh, the midlife crisis where they go out and buy a motorbike and grow long hair
Exactly right, yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. One other thing that might happen to you in your 40s, if you're unlucky, is you might end up with your arteries becoming furred up and have to have something done about it because this does happen to men and it happens at a younger age than, than it does in women and therefore is an important health problem. But although we've managed to bring the field of arterial surgery, if you like, and bypass grafting enormously forward in, in the last 20 years or so. And what I mean by that is that if you'd had, say, chest pains and angina or a cardiac problem in the 1980s and the 1990s, the treatment you probably would have received is an artery bypass graft where they would have opened up your chest and put a piece of blood vessel around a blockage to a coronary artery. That all changed in the late 90s when uh, interventions called PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention, came in. The idea is you thread a, a catheter up through an artery, go into the coronary arteries that supply the heart, put some dye down the artery, use x-rays to see where the narrowings are in the arteries, you then inflate a, a balloon inside the artery, opening it up, and then you prop it open with a little metal cage called a stent. That's pretty standard now, and it's totally revolutionised the treatment of heart complaints. The problem is that that sort of imaging with dye uh, and x-rays has a number of problems. One is ionising radiation, which is not all that good. But two, the dye is also bad for people who have a kidney problem or diabetes in the first place. It, it doesn't do much good to your kidneys. But also, it only tells us about the structure of the artery and where they're narrowed. It doesn't tell you anything about whether those bits of narrowed artery are getting a lot worse a lot quicker or whether they're just stable and could actually be left alone and there are trouble spots brewing elsewhere. But now there's a paper this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. It's by Farouk Jaffa and uh, his team. He's based at Harvard University. And they wondered whether there were any chemicals or dyes or substances that could be used to see where the hot spots or the trouble spots could be brewing in the walls of arteries. So they took a look at what's already being used medically and they found this stuff called indocyanin green. It has a very long, complicated chemical formula, but it's been used for over five decades quite safely. It's FDA approved and it's used for imaging blood flow in various organs. And it turns out it's very lipophilic. It likes fatty stuff. So it looked ideal. And so they started doing some tests in experimental rabbits and they found that when you put this into the rabbit, it will go into fatty deposits in the walls of arteries and it seems to preferentially localise into the areas where those deposits are showing signs of being most unstable. And the added bonus here is that it can be detected by near-infrared radiation. So in other words, it emits and absorbs signal in the near-infrared regime. So you can detect where it's gone in the wall of a blood vessel by threading a little probe inside the blood vessel and then just pulling that probe back along the inside of the wall, recording the tracings, and in studies comparing ultrasound of the vessel and x-ray imaging the vessel and also gross histopathology of rabbit aortas that they've done these tests on, it matches up very, very well. And because it's already safe, safely been used, five decades of safe use, no reason why this couldn't go into the clinic tomorrow. And it means you're uh, not using ionising radiation as well to do this. Exactly. So it should be a lot better for a number of different reasons. Yeah, just one, one thing. I mean, how come it was used for five decades and no one really noticed that it, it might be useful for this? Why do you think? It's a classic example of a solution being under your nose without realising it. And it's because people have done various anatomy and pathology studies now and said, we're beginning to realise that not all narrowed arteries are made equal and there are some bits which are carrying a worse prognosis than others. Now we need to find a way to image those and identify where the hotspots are. They then went saying, well, what can we do that with? And this substance appears to fit the bill. 
And if you'd like to read up on any of the news we've covered this week, the references and the transcripts for each of the stories are online at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.